0: The Big 12, I just crumpled up a piece of paper, threw it in the garbage and said, I hate the damn Big 12.
1: Hello again, and welcome in to another episode of The Lion's Edge, brought to you by BetMGM. I'm your host, Chase Kitty, content writer here at BetMGM, working for the blog team. And we have an excellent episode of the show for you today. And I don't say that all the time. I try not to BS you guys, uh, as the as the regular listeners know. But this is a really good one. I'm very, very pleased to get Phil Steele back on the show. Uh, he's going to walk us through the upcoming college football season. It is, of course, week one. Time to get your full slate of bets in, get those parlays in, get the win total bets in, because it is all coming down on Saturday. I've got lots of predictions on how I feel about the season coming up in the back half of the show, but I want to get to my conversation with Phil. Really good, really long, generous with his time, as always. He walks us through... Uh, pretty much the whole season, the SEC, the Big Ten uh, conversations he has in the offseason with coaches and how they tell him, uh, how they give him kind of inside information and what they ask of him in return, how he handles the transfer portal, uh, all kinds of stuff on conferences and bets and win totals and, and the value of betting FCS, which is a personal favorite topic of mine. All kinds of good stuff from him, so let's get right into that. Uh, Without further ado, my conversation with the legendary Phil Steele. Phil Steele, welcome back to the Lion's Edge. Hey, thank you. Pleasure being on again. Let's get right into it. Georgia lost Stetson Bennett, and we'll have to go back to playing a 20-year-old quarterback like everyone else. They've somehow turned over 25 players in the NFL draft in the last two years, which doesn't even seem like it should be mathematically possible. Georgia's plus 225 in the national championship market right now. Nobody else is closer than 6-1, so the market says that Georgia is the prohibitive favorite for this year. Uh, when, when you've gone through all your prep and, and, and you know written out your preview for Georgia and looking at the rest of the SEC, rest of the top of the national championship market... Is that what you've seen, a, a Georgia team that should be this level of dominant, at least uh, from, from what the market projects?
0: Well, I don't, I don't think it's worth a wager on Georgia at that price uh, because, I mean, there's only been the last time somebody three-peated for the national title was back in the 1930s when the Minnesota Golden Gophers did it and you look at Georgia last year I mean the Missouri game they trailed by double digits in the fourth quarter if Ohio State's field goal goes through the uprights at the end of the game we're talking about Ohio State as the defending national champ so the thing about college football is anything can happen and and plus 225 is not worth a wager especially when you got to hold on to it for the entire season but I do think Georgia is the team that should be, uh, and I did pick them to win the title. You know, you look at them defensively. Last year they lost nine starters, uh, nine NFL draft picks. This year they only lost five. Last year they lost five first-round draft picks. This year they only lost two. There wasn't as many concerns on the defense. I think last year the defense actually took a little step back. They went from allowing 10 points per game to 14. I think this year they're closer to the 2021 version. And offensively, while Carson Beck is a first-time starter, He has been in the program for four years. He's got my number one rated offensive line in front of him, number four set of receivers number six set of running backs, and they're going to be at least a 17-point favorite in their first 10 games. The only game they're not that big of a favorite is at Tennessee, November 18th, and by the time that rolls around, Carson Beck will be not an inexperienced quarterback. He'll have 10 starts under his belt, seven SEC games, so I think Georgia's in good shape to get the uh, thing. I do believe they're the best team in college football, the one with the least amount of question marks, but anything can happen in college football.
1: What does the balance of power look like throughout the rest of the SEC to you? Are the top end challengers deeper than Alabama and LSU? Do you do you take that Tennessee team seriously to be back in the mix this year? What does it look like throughout the rest of that conference?
0: Yeah, Georgia's really got one main competitor in the East, and I think that's Tennessee. And when you look at Tennessee, the big question mark is going to be Joe Milton. Can Joe Milton do what Hendon Hooker did last year, which was just two interceptions? 27 touchdowns. I mean, Milton's got the arm strength. He's been in the program for 3 years. He's got the he's got a very good supporting cast, but if he can keep the turnovers down, the accuracy up, then I think Tennessee is a threat to Georgia at the end of the year. I've got Tennessee a dog in two games, at Alabama and then against Georgia. And while the West, everybody talks about Alabama and LSU, I'm going to throw Texas A&M into the mix. And, you know, when I look at Texas A&M and I went over the team with Coach Jimbo Fisher last year, they were very inexperienced. In fact, number 124 on my experience chart coming into the season. And a lot of the positions that Coach Fisher would talk to me about, he would wrap it up like the offensive line where he said, Phil, we're going to have one of the best offensive lines in the country. And then he finished it with next year. Well, it's next year now. And this is an experienced team. And they go all the way up to number 14 on my experience chart. You know, am has been recruiting at the same level as Alabama, LSU and Ohio State. And last year, even in that five and seven season where they were hit hard by injuries on philsteel.com, I have a blog up there which talks about last year's injuries. a had the second most starts lost injury last year of any team in the country. Top, on top of their inexperience level, this year they've move up experience-wise. They should be healthier. They lost to Nia Smith, their top wide receiver, week four. They had three different starting quarterbacks. The offensive line had three freshman starters one week. They're in much better shape, but even last year when they were five and seven, they beat LSU 38 to 23 and they were at Alabama's two yard line on the road with a chance to win the game. They're down by four thrown in the end zone. Had they pulled that off, they would have beat both Alabama and LSU in a five and seven season. I think they're a legitimate threat in the West this year.
1: All right. I'm so happy you brought them up. Cause I had this in my notes, you know, there's so many good elements in the magazine that people love. And one of the top ones I think is, is your most improved teams list and Texas A&M is number 1 on there. And I I think sometimes there are teams like Texas and Texas A&M where they just constantly get thrown into these preseason conversations about like hey don't you know, watch out for those guys. But it, it seems like what you're saying and you certainly have a lot more cachet than a lot of people in these preseason discussions. It seems like you're saying this is a little different this year, the whole Texas A&M preseason hype, that the pieces are there in a way that maybe hasn't been true last year or the year before in terms of experience and recruits. This is where it all comes together.
0: Yeah, and ironically, uh, let's go back to 2020. Uh, 2020, I had Texas A&M, my number one surprise team in the country, and that year they they nearly made the playoff. They were number five, just missed. In fact, they finished number four in the country, probably should have made the playoff that year. I have not had them on either my surprise team list or most improved list the last two years. So now they're back on the surprise team list this year, back on the most or on the most improved list uh, for the first time, uh, because to make the most improved list, you have to be coming off a losing season, which they are. And it seems like a quarterback, they, they probably have it figured out with Connor.
1: I think that's probably going to work out.
0: Yeah, Connor Wegman really came out in the second half of the year. And he was, keep in mind, he was a, a true freshman quarterback thrown into the fire last year. And they p- were playing a pretty tough schedule with a lot of tough road games. And uh, I thought Wegman really played well, especially the
1: LSU game at the end of the year. In the Big Ten, is it still as simple as Michigan versus Ohio State?
0: No, I, th- I think you got to throw a couple other teams in there. Uh, you do have to throw Penn State in for sure. And here's the thing about Penn State. When you look at them defensively, they got my number three rated defensive line my number four set of linebackers, my number one defensive backs. They've got one of the best defenses in the country. I well, one of the team with Coach Franklin, they're a legitimate three deep, I think, at 10 of the 11 positions. Uh, they're solid on special teams. They've got the best offensive line, perhaps, that Franklin's had in his 10 years there. Drew Allar, I think, is going to do well at QB, and they've got Singleton and Allen at running back. They bring in Dante Cephas from Kent State, at wide receiver, to go along with Keandre Lambert-Smith. They just have to break through and beat the big boys. They've been playing Ohio state tough each of the last couple of years. They do have to play them on the road. They get Michigan at home. And while Michigan manhandled them last year, the last time Michigan traveled to happy Valley, 2021, uh, they needed a late touchdown just to pull out the win. I thought Penn state controlled that game and probably should have won. So this could be the year Penn state actually breaks through and out of the West, keep your eyes on Wisconsin. They're another one of those teams that uh, could surprise. And, um, you know, Chase, this is going to surprise you a little bit. Uh, when I first did the magazine and the first write-through process, I was not high on Wisconsin. I thought, oh my goodness, they're switching to the air raid offense. This is a team that thrives on the run game. They win their games in November because of a power run game, and now you're just going to throw the football over the field, abandon Braylon Allen and Ches Malusi. I'm not wild about Wisconsin, but third write-through process of the magazine is after I talked to the head coaches. And this year, I talked to 123 of the 133 head coaches. And after talking to Coach Fickle, he assured me they are not abandoning the run game. In fact, he said the last uh, couple of years, they've been running into eight, nine-man boxes. And he feels that going to the spread offense with Tanner Mordecai, a quarterback, with some receivers they brought in, like C.J. Williams from USC, who you're going to love, that they're going to spread the field out. Now, all of a sudden, Braylon Allen and Ches Malusi aren't running into eight, nine-man boxes. They've got more open space to run. And the surprising stat, I looked that up after I my conversation, they haven't averaged over five yards per carry the last three years because of those stacked boxes. So it used to be Wisconsin always averaged five and a half, six yards per carry on the season. So I think they get back to that effectiveness on the offense. And then I did it on PhilSteel.com. I have a blog up there about the experience chart and teams that make the big jump. Like I talked about with AM going from number 124 all the way up to 14. Wisconsin was number 107 last year. They only had three returning starters on defense. This year they have eight returning starters on defense. They're up to number 20 on my experience chart. And then you always have to factor in the schedule. Look at their road games. Washington State, Purdue, Illinois, Indiana, Minnesota. I consider all those winnable. The toughest two games on the schedule are Iowa and Ohio State, and they get them both at home, plus they catch Ohio State the week after the Buckeyes play Penn State in a massive game. So the schedule sets up real nice. And I think if you get Wisconsin into the championship game of the big 12 or the Big Ten, that um, Luke Fickle, who's taken his team already, taking the Cincinnati team from the group of five into the playoff, would have the shot at an upset at that
1: point. It is funny to hear Luke Fickle describe. It feels like what a lot of other coaches went to twenty years ago. Like, what if we spread things out? The run game would have lighter boxes to run against. Uh, but I mean, he's he's absolutely right. It's 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 trended downhill in uh, in Madison in the last couple of years. You, you referenced there your your conversation with coaches and how it affects mid rewrite. Go back and revisit what you've already done after you talked to all those coaches. And I, I, that's kind of something I wanted to ask you about specifically in the context of of some of the teams we've already talked about, Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State, because they all dealt with really high-profile quarterback succession issues over this offseason. We're a week away from the season. We know it's Carson Beckett, Georgia. It seems like Kyle McCord's likely the guy at Ohio State, which is what the magazine says as well, but we don't know for sure. Devin Brown's kind of lingering around there. Saban has the most complex situation of everybody with Simpson and Buckner and, and Milroe and he says that's even going to go into the season at this point. I'm curious, when you call up these coaches in the summer for background, how transparent are they about these ongoing high-profile quarterback battles like this? Because you obviously have as much equity in the space as anyone, but they, they can't give away everything. And in some cases, they might not even know everything yet at that point. So what are those conversations like? I, I
0: think for the majority of them are very transparent. Uh, I can tell you that I've had coaches tell me, this guy's going to be the starting quarterback And yet, don't release that, Phil. I'm going to be saying it's a quarterback battle, and I will run the company line. And if I do my radio interviews, I say, hey, it's a a quarterback battle. I think this guy's going to be the starting quarterback, and uh, that's the way it's going to go. But there are some, like you mentioned, with Alabama. That thing is very much up in the air. I think Coach Saban has been waiting for somebody to take charge. You know, Tyler Buckner got there later than the other two, so he had to really make a charge. Hasn't quite made up the ground. Jalen Milrow, they were hoping the accuracy would greatly improve. Hasn't necessarily Really done that. Ty Simpson's still in there. And they're even talking a little bit about the true freshman, Dylan Longeran. But this is a, an Alabama question, big-time question mark that probably will go into the season. And uh, hopefully it's solved before the Texas game, because that's pretty big uh, week two. So there are some legitimate quarterback battles. I think when you look at Ohio State, that one's actually tighter than I thought it would be. I was pretty much a slam dunk On Kyle McCord, I'm surprised Kyle McCord has not taken the bull by the horns and completely run it. I mean, Devin Brown is a guy that gives you more mobility. Maybe they're concerned about the tackle situation that they have there at Ohio State. They've got two brand new tackles that are replacing big-time draft picks. And maybe Devin Brown gives them a better chance. Frankly, I'm surprised that one's not decided yet.
1: I am, too. I I thought... You get that Ohio State the, these last few years has liked their hypermobile quarterbacks, and that's kind of how they run the offense through, but it seems like McCord was just the obvious choice there.
0: Yeah, and, and you know what? I'm not that concerned because first-year starting quarterbacks at Ohio State, I think if you go back and take a look, they've had the best quarterback in the Big Ten nine in the last ten years, and when you're throwing to Marvin Harrison and Amika Ibuka and the tight ends like Cade Stover, you got the best receiving core in the country to throw to. The quarterback's going to put up some big numbers.
1: A little more broadly on the prep process, I'm sure this is a question you get all the time now. I wouldn't be surprised if it's the number one question you get. How does the transfer portal affect your magazine prep process? How has that evolved over the years as it's become a more built-in part of of the year-to-year college football process?
0: Pretty big. Uh, It used to be, Chase, that um, the spring practice is over. I've talked to the head coaches, and you pretty much know the rosters. They're set in stone. I used to go to the press in May, which was very nice. You'd get out to the newsstands in June, uh, early June, actually. You could get out to the newsstands. It takes about four weeks to turn the magazine around, and everything was fine. But now the transfer portal closed this year on May 15th. And thank goodness it was May 15th. They had originally talked about May 30th. So the transfer portal closed on May 15th. Uh, The coaches conversations, each coach I talk to takes about an hour, I would say an hour on the average. So I can only fit so many in per week. It's generally about a four to five week process talking to the coaches. So if I talk to a coach early, I say, look, you got my cell phone. Please update me. If you sign somebody, I don't care. We're going to the press June 7th, which is where we went to the press this year. I said, I don't care if it's June 6th. Text me. You get a player, we'll put them on the page. We'll rewrite the thing. So here we are that last week of June. I'm getting texts on June 6th from coaches. Hey, we just signed this guy. We're re- rewriting the projected starting lineup, rewriting the position. I'm updating my power ratings. We're scrambling around all at the last minute. Uh, but I'd like to scap- say we captured about 95%. I gave it three weeks to capture all the player moves from the, the May 15th to June 7th. And I'd like to feel we captured about 95% of the signees. But uh, very frantic down the stretch and forces to go to the press
1: later than we normally do. I, I want to ask you a couple questions about the Big 12. Obviously, uh, listeners know this is a conference I, I watch a whole lot of. Kind of a strange year, Oklahoma and Texas playing the swan song before they go to the SEC. Brett Yormark, the commissioner, pretty much openly rooting against them in some comments he made the other night. Uh, And kind of famously, Oklahoma and Texas haven't made a conference title game since they announced they were leaving. Yet when you look at the betting markets, Oklahoma and Texas are the betting favorites to win the conference, in part, I think, because their names are Oklahoma and Texas on the jersey. So how should fans view the Big 12 this year? Is it is it that one last round of Texas versus Oklahoma at the top? Are there other teams down the line like TCU last year that should be taken seriously as, as top-end conference contenders or even playoff contenders?
0: Yeah, Chase, as I mentioned, I do the magazine, a three-right-through process, and after I go through the first right-through, I like to make a preliminary selection on who I think is going to win. Like I said at that point I had Iowa over Wisconsin, for example, in the West. But I like to do a preliminary one, and I pretty much knew of the, of the 10 conferences, I was pretty happy with, hey, these teams are the ones at the very top. These are the ones in the middle. These are the ones at the bottom. And nine of the 10 conferences. And then the Big 12, I just crumpled up a piece of paper, threw it in the garbage, and said, I hate the damn Big 12. I don't know what's going on because you take a look at the last couple of years. I mean, Baylor was in the Big 10 title game. Nobody expected that. And of course, everybody called for TCU against Kansas State last year. Remember that? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I could, if you told me right now, Phil, I need you to give me a a case for Oklahoma state winning the big 12. I could tell you completely best schedule. I, you know, Mike Gundy's a guy that had him in the top 10 middle of the season last year, blah, 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 Texas tech, make a case for them to win the big 12. I could do it. Baylor, make a case for them to win the big 12. I can make a strong case for them. TCU. You know, after talking to Coach Dykes, I originally thought TCU was going to take a big step back, but a lot of the positions we went through, he we said, Phil, I think we're as good or better than we were last year. Whoa. So that that happens when you think of TCU has that shot. Kansas State, I'll make a strong case. Oklahoma, Texas. When I did the first write-through process of the magazine, the one thing I had set in stone, Chase, was I am not picking Texas, Oklahoma, because everybody's gunning for him this year. Not going to happen. But if you look on page 138 of the magazine, my power rankings for the conference. I have Texas number one or tied for number one in all eight position categories. They are the most talented team in the league with the fewest amount of question marks. Yes. They're the only team in the league that has to play each of the other uh, five of the other six top six teams. They're the only one that plays them all. uh, And that's why I picked Texas to do it And Oklahoma. Believe it or not, you know, last year was a first year for Brett Venables. The defense is going to be vastly improved this year. He runs a complex defense. They now know the schemes. He brought in some transfers. They've got Dylan Gabriel back, and they've got a great schedule, unlike Texas. When you look at Oklahoma's schedule in Vegas right now, they're actually favored in 11 of their 12 games. The road games are against BYU, Kansas, Oklahoma State, and Cincinnati. Cincinnati all winnable. And so the toughest games are at home. They've got the dream schedule. So that's why I actually picked Texas and Oklahoma in the big 12 title game. But like I said, I can make a strong case, even UCF. If you want, to make, want me to make a case of UCF, they're the best of the four newcomers of the big 12. And the only one I think that has a chance of competing this year.
1: Yeah. We, we talked earlier about your most improved list. The Texas A&M was number one on, I, I believe if memory serves, Oklahoma's number two. So yep. yeah, a lot, a lot of, A lot of justified, I think, arguments for why those two should be at the top. I do want to ask you about the the newcoming teams, the UCF and, and Houston and Cincinnati and BYU. It seems to me like those are good ads for the conference, geography aside. But I don't think particularly highly of them here in year one. It just seems like a lot of them are kind of on down cycles. I think UCF will be good. The other three I'm not so sure about. What do you think the expectations should be short term for those teams? Yeah, you know,
0: talking to Coach Sataki, he has been through this before. Remember, he was with Utah when they went into the Pac-12 and struggled. Mm-hmm. And he feels BYU is a little better set up to go into the Big 12 than Utah was to the Pac-12. I think Utah is pretty much 500 the first couple of years. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think when you look at BYU – uh, you look at Cincinnati, you look at Houston, they're all sort of in rebuilding years. BYU is one that's got 15 returning starters, probably better uh, in decent shape at quarterback if Keaton Slovis can recapture his USC form and not his Pit form. But I think all three of those teams struggle in their first year. They're now facing a power five teams on a weekly basis, something they didn't used to do. And I don't know if the depth's there. Cincinnati and Houston are inexperienced teams, but of the four, I think UCF is set to do it. And when I talked to Coach Malzahn, remember he coached in the SEC. And he flat out said, we've been preparing to go to the Big 12 for two years now. So he is ready. He feels his team's ready to go. I think their problem last year was when John rice Pullman got injured. The backup quarterbacks were in question mark. Go back to the championship game of the American Conference. Plumley was injured, and uh, Miley Keene said, I'm going to redshirt. So they were forced to go with their third-string quarterback against Tulane, or else probably UCF would have won the conference last year. They beat Tulane on the road during the regular season. They've got Timmy McLean. they got a lot of talent back, both offensively and defensively. Schedule's not super easy. They have to play Kansas State on the road. They have to play Oklahoma on the road, and they have to play Texas Tech on the road. But I think of the four
1: teams, if any of the four are actually going to contend, UCF is my choice. To revisit that that most improved list one more time, I'm a Sunbelt guy. I love seeing Louisiana, App State, Georgia Southern on there. You know, UTEP was a team I recently did a lot of work on uh, personally. Nebraska under Matt Rule, Nebraska's on there. What's a team that jumps out as a name that isn't really being considered or talked about at all in college football circles right now that you think is going to be really relevant there, this year and make a splash even if it's you know a, a surprising eight and four nine and three season, not necessarily like, oh wow, they're in the playoff.
0: I'm, I'm gonna go with App State. you know Apps off a, a six and six season last year where not a lot of things went right. They lose their starting quarterback. So expectations are pretty low for App State this year. But when I talk to Coach Clark, He said, you know what, I'm happy I'm the coach of this team because I know we're going to get this thing corrected. And while they're only number 120 on the experience chart, their difference is the last two years they've gone with Chase Bryce and tried to throw the football a little bit more. Now they're going back to their wheelhouse. Their quarterbacks in Ryan Mm -hmm. Berger. Joey Agliar, uh, Mason McHugh. These are more running quarterbacks. So remember, App State, at its best, ran the football with the quarterback. That's what they're going to do. They got Nate Knoll back. And then they've got a really nice schedule this year. Uh, the only games I have an underdog are at North Carolina, at Wyoming, a slight dog there, and at James Madison, a slight dog there. So I think this is a team that
1: didn't even make a bowl game last year, but I think they're capable of maybe even getting the double-digit wins this year. Wait, it's funny to hear you draw the mention the at JMU game because I know – I'm a JMU alumnus, and the, I know exactly what happened the last time App State, App State went to JMU, and I know a lot of people that are excited about that game. Speaking of JMU, uh, last year I asked you about the difficulties of forecasting a team like that, that was that was popping right up, no transition from FCS to FBS. We got a little more, bit more of that this year with, with Jacksonville State and with Sam Houston. What are your expectations for those teams? It, it feels a little bit like the expectations have increased on how fast a team can, can come up and be competitive. But I'm a little skeptical that other teams are going to be able to replicate what happened in Harrisonburg last year.
0: Yeah. I mean, we are talking James Madison is like the gold of yeah. FCS football. So they have been the gold, they've the gold standard. They have been at the top and, and Kurt Signetti is a, a coach that always gets the most out of Now, Rich Rod did a great job last year. In fact, I talked to Coach uh, Rodriguez prior to the season last year, went over his team with him, just prepping for this year's magazine, getting ready for it. And a uh, 9-2 and two season was outstanding, but they weren't exactly playing murderer's row. I mean, you look at the right. Tulsa game, they lost 54-17. And this is a Jacksonville State team that's had some good seasons, but not James Madison type of seasons. They haven't played in the same conference. They are taking a step up. They are experienced. But I think that they're going to struggle in the step up this year, and and I, I don't see them getting anywhere near the nine win total last year. Now Casey Keeler played it different. I mean Sam Houston State was ten and zero, eleven and one, and then last year. They redshirted a bunch of players, which uh, makes them sneakily good. They they were not as bad as their 5-4 and four record would indicate last year. They were able to redshirt a bunch of players. They bring them back this year. And I think they're going to be better than expected. But I still don't think, I think if they get to a, a winning record, I think that would be an accomplishment. I think both teams struggled this year uh, in the move up. And uh, and if either of them gets to a, just a winning record, or even
1: flat out 6-6, six and six, they should be very happy with this year. We'll get you out of here on this, Phil. Any official predictions for the year? Your projection for the four teams in the college football playoff? National championship uh, prediction? I'll even take a week one prediction if you've got it. Uh, Just, you know, looking forward into the season, anything you want to project?
0: Yeah, the four teams I project for the the playoff this year, I went with Georgia, you know, you look at Alabama on paper and you got all kinds of question marks. They only have five starters back on offense, five on defense. They don't know who their quarterback is. They're at the at the bottom of my experience chart. But they got this guy, Nick Saban, on the sidelines. And if you don't, if he's not preseason number one, I mean he's only won one national championship when preseason number one. Last time they weren't preseason number one was 2020, national championship. Last time they came in preseason number four national championship, I'm not going to be the guy that doesn't pick Alabama to make the playoff. So I got Georgia and Bama in the playoff. Out of the Big Ten, I went with Michigan. And this is um, Coach Harbaugh's best team that he's put on the field in his uh, seven years there, or nine years there, I should say. And you look at the schedule. I've got Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State all very close in the power pole But Michigan's got the best schedule. They've got one tough road game at Penn State. They get Ohio State at home, and the non-conference slate is cake. I think Michigan makes the playoff. And then the team out of the box that a lot of people didn't even have in the top 10 this year is Clemson. And when I look at Clemson this year, uh, and I went over the team with Coach Sweeney, uh, he pointed out that, remember that 2018 defensive line, how dominant it was, how many NFL guys they had? He said this group doesn't have the star power of 2018, but it's actually deeper in talent and experience in that 2018 group. I made it my number one defensive line. And there's a guy like Peter Woods, a true freshman, who's going to be dynamic this year. I couldn't find a starting spot for him. They've got four really good starters. they got four really good backups. The third string is very strong. Uh, they've got Carter and Trotter, at linebacker. They bring in Cade Klubnik at QB. The offensive line and receiving core is improved. And then you look at their schedule this year. Their toughest two games are Florida State and Notre Dame. They get them both at home. Uh, and they've only lost one home game the last six years in Death Valley. So I think they win against Florida State, a team they beat last year, and Notre Dame at home. And I've got Clemson making the playoff this year, and that's why I have them number two in the country. I think they run the table. I like their over nine and a half.
1: All right, Phil Steele, the magazine. I got it right here. It is the book the experts cannot live without. Certainly in my case, that is true. Always room to go out, and but even though we're close to the season, I always try to emphasize this. I think I've heard you say this too. It's close to the season, so you maybe feel like, oh, why do I need a summer magazine? There is so much value to having this in-season, especially for gamblers. There are so many ATS notes for every team and every schedule. There's a place to take notes in it. I love this thing. I can't do it without it. Uh, So I really appreciate you and your team and all the work you do in the summer to put this together. And, of course, I appreciate you coming on the show as well.
0: I appreciate that, Jason. Just for your listeners real quick, the only two brick and mortar places that you can get the magazine this year are Books A Million and Barnes and & Noble. So Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or Philsteel.com. And you'll appreciate this, Chase. There's a lot of FBS versus FCS games. I have a FCS magazine with two full pages on every FCS team. So you can become an instant expert. And you're if you're gambling, the Alabama LSU game during the week, that's the sharpest line on the board. Everybody knows everything about the game. But when you take Princeton yeah. against Columbia or something like that, that's where your value is. Get that FCS magazine. It's available at philsteele.com.
1: I have said it a million times. You are absolutely right. There's so much value in chasing down these weird FCS lines that nobody pays attention to. Correct me if I'm wrong. You, there were a couple years where, where you guys took the FCS magazine off, but it's back now.
0: Yeah, we, we put it out, and we actually printed the magazine for three or four years, uh, one giving one page per team, but just didn't yeah. sell on the newsstand. So now it's digital only, and we actually went two full pages, because I've been tracking the spreads on the FCS for the last five years. Nobody's got spread information on the FCS it's for true. the last five years. It's right there in the magazine on every page.
1: Uh, that's awesome. Uh, that's a great plug. And, and I would add my personal experience getting the magazine this year. You, you mentioned Books A Million and, and Barnes and & Noble, the only two places you can get it uh in brick and mortar places i went to three different barnes and nobles and they were like we we can't keep them on the shelves everybody keeps buying them so i, d- I went to philsteel.com and I, and I bought the magazine that way it came in like 36 hours it was great so i i can't uh, i can't say enough about the the product and and just the overall process
0: i appreciate that chase and uh i always enjoy our football conversations good talk on football today
1: all right thanks again to phil great insight as always always appreciate him coming on the show and giving us some time here on the Lion's Edge. Uh, Of course, Wednesday, we'll have the the picks episode as normal, and you can come back to the Lion's Edge every Wednesday, and there will be picks for college football throughout the season. Once NFL starts next week, there's also NFL picks to consider on Thursday. Uh, I like to think of it as I'm just giving you some perspective, right? Uh, I make pretty much all the bets in real life that I share on the show. Sometimes you have good weeks. Sometimes you have meh weeks. Twice a year, I have shitty weeks. It just kind of is how it is. You guys know how betting works. Uh, but if you like a bet that I share on the show, obviously, you can consider making it in real life. And if you don't like it, you just not bet it. That's how I think about it. I'm just giving you different looks for different teams uh, to consider. And that's especially valuable, I think, when you consider all the all the work I do, like down in the dirt and in the on, in the obscure G five level on the FCS level, looking at games that a lot of people or a lot of other maybe picks prognosticators don't really spend a lot of time on, I think that's generally where the show is at its best. We will, of course, get to all of that and more later in the week. For now, as promised, I want to do uh, just some season broad predictions. Uh, so some of this maybe will riff off things that I talked about with Phil. Others maybe rip riff off stuff that I've talked about uh, on the blog that you guys may have read from me before now. Uh, and of course, uh, as always, all relevant links I'll place in the show notes. But let's get to some predictions for the 2023 college football season. I'm going to start with some win totals. And look, I could have done an episode with 50 or 60 win totals. I had to choose my battles here with the show. Didn't quite have the time to get something like that over the finish line uh, after I missed a lot of time earlier this month. I put a lot of time into last week's NFL win totals mega show. So, you know, you can always go back and check that out if you want. Uh, Here, I'm going to give you five win totals I feel pretty strongly about. Just the five. Teams, Uh, these are teams that I have looked at pretty closely over the past few months for one reason or another. Number one here on the list of five, James Madison, my alma mater. The hype train remains rolling in Harrisonburg this year as the Dukes gear up for a second FBS season. And this is the one I think that really backs up the idea that JMU is here to stay as a real G5 power relevant in FBS football. After last year's run, where they basically won the Sun Belt, or at least the Sun Belt East, in spite of their first year ineligibility, I think JMU is going to be good again this year, but there are reasons for cautious optimism rather than full blown burn it down frivolity. For one, JMU is replacing yet another quarterback and it seems a bit too wide-eyed just to assume that the next guy, whoever it is, is going to replicate Todd Santeo's immediate, extremely high-level success. As easy as the schedule was last year, it is much harder this year. JMU got an extra bye week last year and only played 11 games because it was that first year in FBS, and that's one of the decisions they made. They more or less ran the table, except for a multi-week period in the middle of the season where Santeo was injured and they were offensively pretty much completely inept. Uh, their cross-division matchups last year were Texas State and Arkansas State, the bottom of the Sun Belt West. Uh, so that's about as easy of the matchups as you could ask for. This year, JMU, much harder cross-draw. They get reigning champ Troy and current betting favorite South Alabama. They also have a road trip to Utah State, a quasi-rivalry game in Charlottesville with UVA, and a weird November non-conference game with UConn where I have absolutely no idea what to think about that game. If this was a normal win total market for a team in its second year of an FBS transition playing in the best G5 conference in FBS college football, you would think that the win total would be like four and a half. But because it's JMU and the infrastructure is immaculate and the hype is insane, the win total is a crazy eight and a half. It's a close call for me, but I actually like the under here. Kurt Signetti could go 12-0 with the schedule, and I wouldn't be totally shocked. But 8-4 with quarterback unknowns and a challenging schedule, like the most challenging in the history of the program, and I have no idea what would even come close as a second-place option. That has me leading toward modest expectations. Relax, JMU people that listen to the podcast. I know you're out there. Eight and four against this schedule would still be a really good season. Number two, about those South Alabama Jaguars, I would take their Sun Belt Championship odds at three hundred. I think Troy has lost a lot and is being way overrated as a top end, top of the market contender. Troy right now is plus three ten. South Alabama three to one. Their win total, though, I mean the the championship bet is one thing, and, and I I would consider taking it, but the win total at seven and a half. For a team that was pretty close last year to winning the whole thing, they won 10 games and has a net TARP rating of plus 8 coming into this season, their win total is 7.5. I get that the schedule's tough. They they got a game at Oklahoma State. But come on. This is one of the easier overs there is in college football. Number three, Boston College, over 5.5. I have talked about this number a few times at this point. And I did a deep write-up on the blog about it. Uh, As more and more conferences move away from the divisional scheduling modeling, that opens up advantages for middling teams stuck in tough divisions. It also disadvantages bad teams whose records were inflated by bad divisions and hold on to that thought for just one more second. But Boston College, they were the whipping boy of the ACC's Atlantic division, and the scheduling this year could significantly change their fortunes. Not like they're going to win the ACC or anything, but I do kind of like what they bring back. They get to dip into the coastal side of things this year. They play UVA, they play Georgia Tech, they play Virginia Tech. They also have home games against Holy Cross, Northern Illinois, and UConn. Ironically, the toughest of those games, probably Holy Cross. I like the over five and a half. Number four, Virginia Tech under five. Meh, teams propped up by lousy divisions is pretty much the definition of Virginia Tech over these last few years, and I have put all of my personal haterade inside in making that assessment. Virginia Tech has a much tougher recruiting landscape than it had 20 years ago. It's got a tougher ACC schedule that it's enjoyed pretty much since forever. It also has zero program momentum and has non-con games against Old Dominion, Purdue, Rutgers, and Marshall with zero FCS gimmies on the calendar. And before you write in the ODU game as an obvious win, remember that the Monarchs have gotten them twice in the last couple of years. All of those are factors in why I like the tech under. But here's the real biggest reason. Giant market movement. I track all this stuff, as you guys know, right out of the gate. When BetMGM posts win totals i get pinged in microsoft teams somebody in the trading team says hey by the way we just post win totals go check them out i write them all down right away and i update a blog post about it so i am all over the numbers in the line movement when this got posted back in the spring virginia tech was at three and a half wins and i thought that's a good number tight avenues either way virginia tech's been down uh, maybe, you know, maybe they stay down. Maybe they get a little bit marginally better. But either way, not really an opening to bet this, in my opinion. Not really interested. But then enough bettors jumped on the number, thinking the Virginia Tech obviously would get the four wins, that it zoomed all the way from three and a half to five and a half. Two full wins. That kind of line movement is pretty wild for a team this bad. And I jumped on the under immediately at five and a half. I would still bet it at five. There just aren't a lot of wins on this schedule. And here we go. Win total bet number five. You're probably expecting it. As I said, these are win totals for teams I watch closely. You'd be correct with this assumption. Maybe you're here from my rant last week on the 1012 Network podcast. Maybe you're a longtime listener and you just know which teams I watch. Maybe you, like me, are a Mountaineers fan from West Virginia. But I've done the homework. I've done the deep roster dive. I just don't think West Virginia is a four-win team this year with a ground game this good. With the offensive line that they have that's probably the best or second best in the Big 12s, you might also like Kansas State. It's 1-2 it's two, or 2-1. Two, you can decide. But those are probably the best two units in the, in the Big 12 is the West Virginia offensive line and the Kansas State offensive line. There is a good chance that West Virginia will lead the Big 12 in rushing this year which is a pretty good start if you're looking to see if a team is going to be bowl eligible. The problem isn't even with the defense this year, which was pretty forgettable last year, but I think will be a little bit better this year. The issue, as it has been for the entire Neil Brown era, is quarterback. And if Garrett Green can play quarterback, if he can add that next dimension to an already effective run game, this is an offense that will be not great, but good. Respectable. Probably top half of the conference. Yes, West Virginia plays Pitt. Yes, they play Penn State. They also draw all four newcomers in the Big 12. UCF, Houston, Cincinnati, and BYU. They dodge Texas, which would be an automatic loss. The win total is 4.5. It's not 7.5. It's not 6.5. It's 4.5. This team is not winning any championship games but I also think it's a bowl team. So this is an easy over to me. I've actually loaded up at several books over the last two weeks because I believe in it that much. I don't think I've bet a WVU win total since the Will Greer days. And for what it's worth, I don't have a good record on the West Virginia stuff. I have a great record. I have never missed one win total bet since I started betting. Undefeated on the West Virginia win totals. And I'm telling you, this is an over four and a half. Heisman. Let's switch gears a little bit. I just bought a ticket on Sam Hartman. Is it too reactionary after the Navy beatdown? Maybe. But the odds didn't really change after the guy threw for 250 and four touchdowns in a nationally televised blowout with no other games really going against it. And Hartman has a lot of big-time narrative bump qualities. Uh, He overcame a blood clot disorder. Veteran quarterback that seems genuinely likable languished in semi obscurity for years at Wake Forest before he finally transferred as an old man plays for a traditional power and is going to be seen as the number one reason why Notre Dame's team from last year is a lot better this year. Now that's not really fair or accurate. I think the roster was already really good and then they added Sam Hartman and fixed the number one issue from last year's team, but most people are not going to be that nuanced about it. They're going to see 2022 Notre Dame bad, 2023 Notre Dame good, Sam Hartman. That's the equation for the average person, maybe even the average Heisman voter. So I really think there's an avenue here for Sam Hartman. I am a little biased because I personally like him. People are going to love Caleb Williams because betters love to bet on things that have already happened But Williams is incredibly priced out. He was already priced out at 5-1. He moved to plus 475 after the San Jose State win. Troy Smith is the only guy to ever win multiple Heismans. And maybe Williams can be the second. But I'm not making that bet for plus 475. So give me Hartman. Maybe I'll consider some other tickets down the road too. Let's get to the big ones. College football playoff predictions. You heard Phil Steele earlier. Mine have some similarities, some key differences. I made a list of teams that I narrowed uh, into my CFP pool. Uh, Those teams were Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, USC, Texas, Clemson, Washington. The first name I crossed off was Washington. And if you've listened to me this summer on radio shows or television shows or this podcast, you have heard me talk about how much I love Washington. I love Penix. I love the idea of what Washington could be. I love that they quietly led the Pac-12 in offense last year while everybody was drooling over USC and Caleb Williams. But the reality is they face an uphill narrative challenge in a conference that is more and more overlooked. The November schedule is brutal. I would just be picking them because I like them, not picking them because the path is right or that even the number is right. It seems too unlikely... So I wrote him off. I wrote down Georgia as my first team. I And Phil did a pretty good job highlighting this. I think the Auburn game is a legitimate danger to them. That game is in September. It's on the road. And I think Auburn is going to be better than people realize this year. I actually had them in my preseason top 25 that I did for the podcast poll. And I also did for the BetMGM blog. So that's a tough road game. And Carson Beck is still... You know, only a couple starts into his career at that point. The rest of this schedule looks extremely manageable. It seems almost impossible that Georgia could lose the SEC East given this schedule. And by December, Beck has a full year of experience and a fully operational Kirby Smart Death Star around him. I am not recommending this as a bet because the price out in the market greatly outweighs the question marks you'd have to buy in order to own this position, but Georgia seems more likely than not to be in the college football playoff this year and worthy of their odds on favorite status. I wanted to pick LSU to win here, uh, and I even wrote LSU as my number one preseason team. But the West has a lot of obstacles this year. With Alabama, always dangerous. You heard Phil talk about A&M. Don't forget about Ole Miss, who's kind of quietly lurking. I already said I liked Auburn. Who knows what happens with Florida State in week one. I love Brian Kelly. And I am as bullish on what he can do in Baton Rouge as anybody. I won't be surprised if he pulls this off this year. But I want a bit more return to buy this right now. Uh, they've been really hit this summer, and their return has gone down. The price has just sh- sh- flown up the table. So unless you're ready to buy two SEC teams in the playoff right now, sight unseen, knowing nothing else about the landscape, I would rather pass here than buy. Let's talk about the Big Ten because I'm gonna, I'm going to blow some people's minds here. Like Phil, I like Penn State this year. I think they're a real threat to the Ohio State-Michigan hegemony. I like them so much, I'm actually going to pick Penn State to beat Michigan and end the long regular season winning streak that Jim Harbaugh has going. I like Michigan to beat Ohio State in Ann Arbor and run it to three straight this year. Ohio State has a tough schedule that I think includes at least one loss, maybe two, depending on how the quarterback stuff shakes out. I do think, though, that Ohio State's going to beat Penn State in Columbus in a top 10 showdown in the middle of the season. What does that mean? That leaves the Big Ten East with a three-way tie atop the standings, assuming everyone finishes as a one-loss team. And while I do think this is probably Michigan's best team under Harbaugh, I'm actually leaving the Big Ten out of the playoff. Which I know is going to seem crazy, and it's going to piss a lot of people off. If it happens, it's going to piss even more people off. But when I tell you what else I see happening in the rest of college football, I think it kind of makes sense that Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State kind of all knock each other off, and you've got a Big Ten version of what happened with Baylor and TCU back when the playoff first started. In the Big 12, I think Texas is going to run roughshod through this conference. I think they're really, really good. And maybe my biggest prediction yet, I'm going to go ahead and say that Texas beats Alabama in Week 2. They have a ton of talent, but most importantly... They know exactly what their quarterback situation is, and Nick Saban does not. In week two, I think that's really going to matter, and it's going to present a situation that Alabama really hasn't had a ton of in the latter half of the Saban run, needing to outgun an offensive-minded team without an elite quarterback, as they have consistently had with Saban in the post-Jake Coker era of football in Tuscaloosa. This Texas win, if it happens, and this is a big if, It would have huge ripple effects. I think it's going to set off a chain reaction of people talking about the end of the Saban era, which will be pretty stupid, but also a little bit inevitable. And to be fair, Saban turns 72 this season, and it does have to end at some point. But Alabama will be playing another season with an early loss, and they don't have a playoff spot from last year to reputationally fall back on. That could get really interesting. Texas A&M, LSU, Auburn, they all present tough challenges for this team, which, again, is going to be much less effective offensively than Alabama fans have been used to seeing over the last few years. Ultimately, I think this is another Alabama team that loses multiple games and misses the playoff. Phil ran off the stats about all the times Alabama has been doubted and then won the championship, and that's fun symmetry but it also has nothing to do with this year or this season. I admittedly am more foolhardy than Phil Steele, for better or for worse, and I am personally, I'm happy to doubt Alabama. I think this is not a top four team in college football. I like Texas, not them, to make the playoff. And by the way, on the Texas side of all this, think how much leeway they'll have in the upset-loving Big 12 with a road win at Alabama in their pocket. They could be 11-1, win the conference, and easily make the field of four. My third team is Clemson. Here, I agree with everything that Phil said. The talent is too high, the schedule is too manageable. We're talking about home games against Florida State and Notre Dame, plus a regular season finale at South Carolina. There's not much else beyond that. Cade Klubnik looks like he's going to be really good if the end of the last season is any indication. So I actually placed a bet on Clemson to finish the regular season undefeated at plus 550. If they're 11-0 going into that South Carolina game, I will have a great spot to buy the other side outright and have no net risk on two big plus numbers. Clemson to make the playoff right now is 3-1. to My last team is USC. I compare USC 2023 to Alabama 2022 because it's a respected coach and a reigning Heisman winner returning to play college football. The difference with USC this year versus Alabama last year is that Alabama had to endure the SEC, whereas Williams only has to beat the Pac 12. The first half of the schedule, extremely easy. The back half is challenging. But also, there's no game that they definitely can't win. They also, because they played Week 0, have an extra bye week relative to most other teams. Remember, USC was imperfect last year, but still in great position to make the college football playoff, and they probably would have. We got two Big Ten teams. Instead, we probably would have had USC if not for an untimely injury to Caleb Williams in the Pac-12 championship game. This year, they come into the season with all the positive bias of having a reigning Heisman winner. He is going to be the center of attention. He's an expected number one draft pick. The media coverage will massively slant in USC's favor because they're a just definitely known commodity coming into the season. At plus 225 to make the playoff, it's the best I've felt about a Pac-12 playoff bet in years. So we got USC plus 225. Texas plus three twenty-five, Clemson plus three hundred, Georgia, their price is minus two fifty, but as I said, I wouldn't bet that. It's just I like them as the other team in the playoff. Those are my four. And there you go. College football predictions for 2023. Thanks again to Phil Steele for dropping by the show. Thank you for listening all the way to the end here. If you like the show, make sure you come back Wednesday. Hear me out on my uh best bets for week one that'll be wednesday every wednesday here on the show and there's also a written version on the blog that i will link to in the show notes let's have some fun it's football season thanks for listening we'll be back soon with another episode good luck with your bets enjoy week one nfl next week until then take it easy